Welcome everybody. Thanks a lot for attending another Uphill Athlete uh, Zoom conference call um, with everybody. Today is I'm going to be talking with uh, my fellow coach and previous climbing partner Scott Semple, and we've got a few topics we wanted to discuss. I want to start the conversation with the introduction of Scott and give people some background on how we know each other and where what the relationship has been because we've We've uh, known one another, climbed and skied together for probably over 15 years, I'm sure. And yeah. um, I kind of mentored Scott a little bit through some of his training, um, education, and that sort of thing. Um, but what we, and what we want to talk about today um, is we, we wanted this topic of free speed. And there's, a, there's some rabbit holes we'll end up going down with this. Um, but before we launch into that, um, I'd like to have introduced Scott, who's also on the call, as you can see above. But we're going to do it with hopefully a little humor. Um, maybe, Steve, you can show us that first slide. Um, I'll give, talk a little bit about how we got our, our start. Um, so, Steve, this is a picture of um, Steve and Scott posed in front of um, uh, Ice Climb in Canada that we had, I think we had just done this or we're about to do it, I must have after we, after we did it, um, called Curtain Call. And I had gone, Steve and I had gone to Canmore to do a bunch of ice climbing one winter. And I had not met Scott at that point, but Scott was way into CrossFit back in those days. And he invited Steve and myself and I'm sure a couple of other people over to his house. He had a little kind of a CrossFit gym set up in his garage. And I did my, Steve and I, I think both did our first cross, CrossFit workouts that afternoon was my introduction to, to Scott. Um, shortly thereafter, we embarked on this sort of little mini road trip to go ice climbing. This was one of the climbs we did. And then we drove north to the Saskatchewan crossing um, to uh, do some other climbs up north of um, in that area and when it got really really cold I think it was in that you know 30 or 40 below zero range where centigrade and Fahrenheit kind of cross and we we made a couple of miserable failed attempts on uh, one of the climbs being Andromeda strain and we end up holing up in a little motel um, and I have a, there's a, we have a nice little picture of the intrepid mountaineer Steve House bivouacked in, in our little, we had three tiny little beds in this, packed in this motel room. Um, and this was me trying to coax Steve to get out of bed to see if we could go climbing. But you can tell what a hard man he is, his expression and the fact that he didn't want to get out of bed. Um, so let me turn it over to Scott, now that we've kind of laid some of the groundwork. And Scott, why don't you give us some of the story of your background? I want to have Steve show some of the other slides of, of uh, you know, some, some of Scott's background and what, he do, what he's done in terms of as a climber. So welcome, Scott. Hi, everybody. Um, as, as Scott said, my name is Scott. Um, and so we're, well, we're no relation. Yeah, we're no relation. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know how much detail uh, we want to get into, but I mean, I, I started uh, climbing in the late 90s. I uh, met Scott and Steve in the early 2000s, as, as Scott had described, um, and have known both of them um, 
since then. Uh, I would, from the late 90s until the 2008 or 9, I was, you know, alpine, ice and alpine climbing and rock climbing. That's pretty much all I thought about or and did as much as possible. Um, it was, yeah, probably one of the, you know, the best, one of the best times of my life. You know, you're in your 20s and early 30s and, you know, living super cheap, living in your vehicle, trying to increase and improve your climbing skills as much as possible. Um, and it was a really fun time meeting like-minded people and, and just enjoying the whole, the whole process. Um, Scott and Steve were, were two of those like-minded people. And in, I think around 2005, I, uh, I knew Steve was, was training and I didn't know anything about it. So I, I, I remember emailing Steve about some training questions and he suggested this interval program to me called Helgerud intervals. Um, and so I remember doing those and I, I think, which is probably typical for me, I started bombarding Steve with more and more questions and he said, go talk to Scott. And, um, so Scott, uh, answered a bunch of my questions then, um, and, and, and continued to through the years. And then, um, I, I got away from climbing and didn't do much in the mountains for a while. And then, uh, came back when I got interested in schemo racing. And got back in touch with Scott um, at that point. That was 2013. And uh, I remember one of my first emails to him. I said, you know, do you mind if I ask you a bunch of questions about endurance training? And if I overstay my welcome, let me know. Um, and he said, yeah, go ahead. And I doubt you're going to overstay your welcome. And then a, a year ago or a few months ago, I was like, I wonder how many times I emailed Scott. So I went and looked. And we, you know, in the past five, or no, that was 13. So in the past seven years, we've, you know, bantered back and forth across over 1,200 different emails. So when Scott said that he, uh, I think in, in the intro today, he said he mentored me a little bit or, or something like that, but that greatly understates it. Uh, Scott was incredibly generous with everything he knows about endurance training. And without him, I would not have learned nearly as much and would not have made as many positive changes in my endurance as I was able to. Um, so it, a really huge thanks to Scott for being so generous. And he, um, yeah, in addition to thoughts and emails, he said, you know, go read this book, go check out this website, go, you know, go learn this stuff. And um, so that was, uh, that was during schema racing from about 2013-14 until, I mean, I'm still interested in it, but I'm, after last year, I'm not going to do it as seriously. Um, but that all came to a head when I was able to attend the, the World Championships in Switzerland in 2019, March of 2019. So that's an abbreviated version of the last 18 years. Your life story in, yeah, in 20 years. Ago. Tell us about this picture, Scott. Uh, so this is, this is on a route. This is in the climbing days, obviously. So this is on a route called Haunted by Waters, which is an alternate start to Sea of Vapors, uh, which is a well-known ice climb on the, the quote-unquote trophy wall on Mount Rundle uh, near Banff, Alberta. Um, so at this time, uh, this might have been before Steve and I met, I'm not sure, but anyway, um, this is, you know, when mixed climbing, bolted mixed climbing, what had 
come to the uh, Rockies and it was getting very, very popular. And so uh, my friend Rob Owens and I put up a, a, a start, an alternate start to Sea of Vapors. So the, the ice above it eventually gets onto the upper pitches of Sea of Vapors. Uh, the crux of the, of the route is below. It's a, uh, a bolted roof. And then you go up this corner to, uh, to join Sea of Vapors. So, and I, I was in gymnastics as a kid and I've been able to retain some flexibility. So I can see that. And, obvi <laughs> and obviously some strength too. Um, well, let's, let's kind of, let's take a dive now into some of the stuff that we, we, we've been promising people in terms of talking about this, uh, what we mean by free speed. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll start the conversation a little bit by saying that, you know, I myself and I think and I know Scott will admit this and and we and I can certainly say it and I think as Steve uh, and I have talked about this a lot in public is that you know, none of let's say I'll use Scott and Steve and certainly myself fits in that category and I think most of the people I've worked with we are not athletically phenoms we are not especially gifted um, what we have is obviously a high level of determination and perseverance and willing to suffer and, and do and, and hopefully be smart about what we're doing for training and and learning skills and that sort of thing but it's not like we were came out of the shoot with these natural talents and as a as a person who isn't overly endowed with a lot of these uh, particular athletic talents I mean, for instance, none of us were born like Usain Bolt. I mean, that guy hit the hit the ground as you know, world champion. You can't you can't even begin to develop that level of uh, athletic prowess if you didn't come out with just the right genes. Um, but the rest of us don't have to completely you know, suffer in total obscurity or never reach our goals. We can do so. But we have to be even smarter about it because we have to learn to be efficient in, uh, in what we do. So one of the ways that Scott and I have talked a lot over the years about, you know, what does somebody of rather modest uh, athletic skills do to become better? And obviously, you know, looking at the low hanging fruit, which is something we talk a lot about in our writings. Um, and also like, how can I be better given how fit I am today? Rather than, I mean, obviously there's a huge fitness component and that's obviously what our entire business is built around and our books are written about and we are very, we stress a great deal. But there are other ways that athletes can develop to become faster. And I think it's an important thing to, to start exploring some of that stuff. So Scott, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you see as let's use well, we can use a few uh, examples of as of both from different sports from let's say it's schemo to climbing to running we can talk about how what athletes what do we mean by free speed and how athletes can achieve some of this uh, improve their speed even with their given whatever their given fitness level is yeah, uh, so I, I uh, kind of think of it as um, if you, you, we all have a certain capacity and uh, a range of capacities that we can influence depending on training. And the other side of the spectrum is the cost of the activity. Uh, and in between cost and capacity is kind of what facilitates performance. So we could increase capacity with training, 
But what I think the, what the subject today is, can we decrease the cost? And um, whether that's being smarter, being more efficient, being more experienced, being more skilled, um, and re- reducing the demands of the activity. Um, and I guess uh, a, good, a good example of that is schema racing in particular, especially transitions. So when a, when a schema racer gets to the top of a hill, they need to get their skins off, get into their bindings, lock their boots, and then descend. And a top transition was like a, a world-class schema racer takes 20 seconds. But if you look at um, the, you know, the average transition out there on the weekend ski touring, it's minutes and maybe half an hour. Um, so somewhere in between 20 seconds and 30 minutes, that's all practicable. That's not, uh, it's not physical capacity. It's not, it's not limited by genetics. It's, it's just getting better at the activity. Um, so that's just a way of, if you reduce the cost, it's free because it, you don't have to uh, get stronger. Yeah, and I've, I've seen similar things, Scott, where, you know, with my, I don't have any background in schemo, um, although I did do one, one race once it was, uh, but I have to say my transitions were a little bit longer than uh, 20 seconds. Um, Takes practice. Yeah. <laughs> which anyway, most people don't like to do, which is kind of, it's given that's exactly. That's one of the points that I think we want to talk about today is a, a lot of the, these little, the, the free speed can come from practicing skills that you probably otherwise don't like to practice yeah and working on them because you just want to when you're out you know ski touring you just want to go ski touring you don't really care about this other stuff and if and if that's what you want that's fine we're not trying to make everybody into a schemo racer or no 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 a, a speed climber that's not the point of any of this the point is if you're looking for some additional speed in whatever sort of mountain event you do start thinking outside just the fitness box i mean the fitness box is really key and we'll get more into that into some examples in a, in a little bit but start thinking outside that box and one of the things that you know i know scott is familiar with and certainly steve and myself is efficiency of movement in alpine terrain mm-hmm. one of the th- things that we run into a lot with the folks that we train uh, do physical training with who are preparing for mountain events is that they they tend to live in cities and they walk on paved surfaces all the time um, and you can develop a high level of fitness doing stuff like that whether it's running on smooth trails hiking on a treadmill that's all great for fitness but when you get into complicated very rough alpine terrain where there's no trail anymore um, there's no good footing and developing that kind of movement skill set is something that can really only be done in that environment. And so you kind of need to make extra effort to develop that, that, those sorts of skills. And other skills like that would be you know, things like, you know, talk a, bit, a little bit about, Scott, your experience in alpine climbing with you know, belay transitions and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, a good example uh, of of skills to practice and, and the idea of free speed is like if you have a device 
uh, an auto belay or auto locking belay device where you it's attached to the anchor and, and as as the person comes up you take in the rope you take in the rope and it gives you an opportunity to do something else so it makes the whole process more more uh, practiced and efficient or stacking stacking the rope so that it plays out without um, tangles and that kind of thing as you as you go through pitch after pitch so is that is that kind of what you meant yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think from you know, some of the tricks that I learned while climbing with Steve and other really high level um, alpinists was that there's no wasted time or effort on the climb. Mm-hmm. So if Steve is belaying me up and I'm, you know, so I'm on like a ATC guide belay device so that it can be sort of hands off. He doesn't have to attend the belay um, 100%. So mm-hmm. he could be putting on a jacket. He could be getting a drink. He could be having a snack. Um, he could be sorting out the rack or making sure the rope is stacked properly. I mean, he's still pulling in the rope, but he's not having to have 100% of his attention um, applied directly to me, um, which allows him this opportunity. And all, you know, I'm still safe because I'm on a pretty tight uh, rope because I'm seconding. And then when I hit the belay ledge, it's literally a matter of seconds where Mm -hmm. he hands me the rack. I switch over the gear onto the rack or, you know, however we're going to do it. And I'm off to the races um, almost, you know, immediately with no lost time whatsoever. And I think one of the biggest things I see, and I'm sure Scott, you've seen this too with um, amateur climbers and climbers are less familiar with some of these techniques is they, the, uh, the second will arrive at the, the ledge, the belayer will have not been using some kind of auto-locking belay device. And as a consequence, you know, he's had to pay close attention to his partner so uh, the whole time. So he couldn't put a jacket on, or couldn't get a drink, couldn't eat, couldn't sort the rope. Was having, all he could do to barely stack the rope properly. Mm-hmm. And then the partner gets there and then they spend you know, 10 minutes transitioning for the the new leader to take off on the next pitch and if you do that several times over the course of a long climb you've just lost a lot of what might be the difference between spending the night on a ledge part way from the summit or getting to the top and back down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that idea that idea of concurrent activities uh like belaying and eating or belaying and and changing your jacket is the same as what i was when I mentioned a schema transition, it's the same thing. You want to be doing more than one thing at once. Like if you're only taking your skins off or only adjusting your boots, um, then those tasks are stacked. If they're concurrent, then the whole time gets a lot shorter. So. Yeah. But what about like packing, Scott? What, what, do you, what have you learned about packing for trips, whether it's a ski trip or a climbing trip? The... Probably the the worst thing for me to do is think what are all the possible things that can happen because then if 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 I go down that road then I need an infinite amount of equipment to deal with all those uh, possibilities. Instead, if I say I'm only going to take a 30 liter pack and it's only going to weigh X pounds, and then I have to force whatever I'm going to take in there, which makes me cut things out. And so it, it's um, embracing a constraint where, the, so I'm only willing to do this on these conditions with this size of pack and this weight of a pack. And then it just forces 
um, some decisions about what to take and what not to. And as, as most people know in, in mountain sports, anytime you have to go uphill, weight is a huge factor. So the, the, the less weight you carry, regardless of your fitness, you will go faster. If we put a 80 pound pack on Killian, Killian Drennan, uh, he would slow down. So it, it, it applies to everyone. Um, so being as light as possible is, is a great place to start. So, so what a, how do you counsel someone who's pretty new to many of these mountain sports with regards to things like the quote unquote 10 essentials that are, you know, often handed down from on high, uh, you know, whether it's in a book or a course you've taken where these, these things are supposed to be in your pack every time you go out the door. How do you, what do you counsel people on? With that? Well, right my, that? I mean, my head the last few years is in skiing uh, more so. So those things come to mind easier. But as far as the idea of the 10 essentials, I would say there might be 10 essentials, but the essentials change. Um, so 10 essentials for going to Everest are not the 10 essentials for going to your weekend crag on the weekend. You don't need a stove to uh, get up most single day rock climbs. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Okay, and, and what about like when you're, you mentioned, you alluded just a few moments ago to this idea that you were going to be trying to, you know, we're trying to optimize here is what I'm hearing you say. So the, you're gonna have just the right amount of stuff in your pack so that it's not too heavy, not too light. Um, what other aspects of these kinds of uh, undertakings could you um, optimize, whether it's you know, with, with regards to selecting a weather window, conditions, I mean, how do you go about doing that? I mean, do you, if you have a fixed date that you say, okay, I'm gonna go climb this route on this day, um, how do you adjust for weather and conditions? Right. So I guess what that makes me think of is the type of constraint you want to embrace. Like if, if, if someone says, I want to succeed on such and such an objective on May 20th and it's date fixed, that's my day off. I have to do it on that day. Then suddenly equipment becomes a factor because you, you need more equipment to deal with more possibilities because you picked a certain day. Um, Rather, if, if you instead uh, have some more flexibility and em embrace a method, like I am only willing to do it with this gear, in this weather, uh, with these snow conditions, then what you take with you, you can take a lot less and probably do the whole objective a lot faster. Um, or if, you, if, if that's your time off, you, you are fixed on that date anyway, maybe you need to be more flexible with objectives. And say is if the if the weather is per, weather and snow is perfect, we'll do A. If it's not, we'll do B. And if the weather is really horrible, we'll do C. Um, so I I think the more it kind of to me it depends what constraint you are willing to embrace, which I guess depends on what's more important to you. I I would much rather have a light pack and perfect conditions. I, that's much more fun <laughs> than a heavy pack. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that kind of brings up something that I know that we've, we've touched on and, and I wrote a little essay in the Training for the New Alpinism book on is kind of the, the art of failure, the art of failing. Mm -hmm. And 
one of the things that I, I'm certainly not, no social media person. I mean, I don't do any social media, but I hear about it all the time from friends and, and younger people that I associate with. Um, actually, pretty much everybody I associate with is younger than me. So, <laughs> um, But what I think may be happening with our current environment with the internet and all the instant information that's available is that there's a tendency to only show people's successes. So people are gonna only wanna brag about the fact that, oh, I climbed this or I did that, or I ran this far, succeeded at this. And nobody, well, I don't see it anyway, I don't hear about it. Nobody's out there bragging about, well, I wasn't good enough to do that. So, you know, I, or I was too afraid. I turned around and went home. And I believe that this, that learning to fail and learning to accept failure as part of the, of the learning experience is a really vital uh, component. And if you go out the door feeling that, you know, it's like you have to exceed, or, or excuse me, you have to succeed, um, or you know, people are gonna think poorly of you or whatnot. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of paraphrase some of what I wrote in that article that I used to um, climb in the 70s with a guy named Charlie Fowler, who was an icon of early uh, of American alpinism at that time. He was a super strong climber, um, was famous for free soloing on many, many very hard routes. Um, and Charlie failed a lot. And I climbed with Charlie a lot and we failed. We went home with our tails between our legs. I bet you that our, in, the, in our winter climbing, that our ratio was 20 to one failures to success. And Charlie took to bragging about his failures. Um, instead of you know, just not talking about him, he actually boasted about, yeah, I went there and I got, got my ass kicked, came home, oof, that was scary. Um, because learning how to turn around, I mean, it's, a, it's kind of the only way to really have a long life in the mountains, <laughs> knowing when to pull the plug and go home. And what, you're, what I'm hearing you suggest is sort of a, a variant on that is, so you've got your heart set on a particular destination, a particular, whether it's you know, running a certain route or skiing something or climbing something and conditions aren't perfect, well, you have a couple of options. One is you can try and, you know, with knowing that the odds are, are pretty slim. And, or the other is you just adjust your uh, reality to this new, what you're seeing on the ground and think, okay, well, that would have been a great climb to do if, you know, the fact that it's, it's 40 degrees and the ice is starting to fall off that climb, we'd be foolish to go up there. And, and then picking some other objective to, to, for that day. And how, how does that, like, I think of that as more like a, a relative, gauging your, your events and your success and all that on a relative scale rather than an absolute scale. I mean, we, there's a tendency for us to compare ourselves to Alex Honnold or to Steve House or to Killian Jornet. You know, none, most of us are never gonna be at those kinds of levels, but that doesn't preclude the fact that, you know, we could get better at, these transitions we've been talking about, for instance, or uh, become more efficient in our running or skiing. And I wanna, I wanna talk about that in a few minutes, but why don't you expand upon that? What's your experience with that kind of relative gauge of success? And how has that impacted you in your athletic career? You know, you were, um, you know, if I, and I know I can say this without embarrassing, you were kind of aerobically pretty deficient when we first started working together. 
Um, and you turned that around and went on to go to world championships in this, you know, in a, in a very aerobically demanding sport. You knew you were never going to be a world champion. Um, but so how did you frame, how did you frame that in your own mind to keep you know, pursuing those types of goals? Well, I've, uh, I guess I've always tried to com primarily compete with myself and use the formal competition, which I came to late, came to later, um, as a way to better my own performance against myself. Cause there's nothing like competition, uh, to drive a performance. Um, so I tried to, I, I, I never thought for an instant that I would, uh, win anything. Um, I mean, I've never been like the, the strongest out there or the, or the fastest or anything, but within my abilities, I just tried to improve it. So I was, um, trying to improve relative to myself, not in an absolute sense relative to the best in the world. But the one thing that I think has a huge value is to use the same methods as those superstars use. Um, and when you talk about this stuff, uh, I don't know, I think, I think a lot of people, or not a lot, some people think that it's silly. Like if you're not going to set the nose record in two hours or whatever it is these days, um, then why go through all of that? rehearsal and research and memorization and whatever else they have to do for that. And I just, I just think do it because it's fun and because it improves your individual performance. You are, you, you get higher, you get closer to your genetic maximum if you use the best methods. Like we don't, have, we don't all have the greatest ability, but we all have access to the information to use the best methods. And using absolute best methods is just a better, a better chance you're going to um, achieve your relative maximum. If that, I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Makes sense to me. And, and I think that um, hopefully people can see that one of the messages that uphill athlete through our writings and books, website, these Zoom talks, all, all the information that we put out there is trying to make accessible these best methods, certainly from the physical training standpoint. Obviously, we don't go into the technical components of schema transitions. I mean, that's just, it's pretty hard. It would be pretty hard for us to do that or just show these tricks in belaying on a multi-pitch alpine climb. Uh, it's, that's going to be a much more challenging thing. And so we, we kind of stick to what we really know well. I mean, not that we don't know these other things well, but that we know we can present to people in a digestible fashion and accessible, make accessible. Um, now you had, it after, I think it was during or after your Schemo success, you also, you were really big into ski touring. And um, for people that aren't familiar with it, there is a, a multi-day traverse of the, the Wapta ice field in the Canadian Rockies that, you know, it's, it's something that everybody who's interested in ski touring should, should do once in their life. Um, it's a five day traverse. I've done it a couple of times. I'm sure Steve has done it and um, probably many of our other listeners have done it. It's a very, very popular, but, but Scott chose to try something different. So why don't you tell us about that story a little bit? 
Sure. Well, that's, uh, so the WAPTA is uh, really close to home. Um, and I, in my climbing days, I, I didn't have much interest in skiing, but the more schemo I did, uh, the much more interest I had in skiing. And, and then as a side note, I wondered why I hadn't done it sooner because skiing is, is pretty fun. Um, anyway, so the WAPTA um, has, it's like Scott, Scott was saying, it's usually done in five days and uh, it's been done in one. Uh, much less than one and so a friend and I also a fellow ski racer uh, wanted to try and do it in a day and um, the the the, rec- the fastest record I've heard of is, is less than six hours so what's so no, most people take five days and someone or probably as a duo has done or maybe solo has done it in six hours um, and so we thought well what you know that that sounds like fun um but with just as far as today's theme just thinking of free speed we did in order to do it in one day we needed to take a lot less gear um so no obviously no sleeping bags and no nothing for overnighting it was a a a day tour so we needed uh day touring gear and with the a schemo bent all of it was was pretty light um yeah. So anyway, we, we ended up doing it uh, just under eight hours. Um, and yeah, like I say, it's not, it's not a record time by any means, but I think our approach was what just allowed us to, to do that. And I think more people could do it in a day. Um, but again, you have to wait for the right conditions. Uh, the WAPTA is really well traveled. So you want, you want, it's, it's almost track set on a good day. If it doesn't, if it, if it doesn't blow in, uh, you want good snow coverage to cover crevasses. You want a good melt freeze overnight. Like there's all, all these factors that play into whether or not it's feasible in a day. Cause if there's a lot of fresh, deep snow, then that's not the day to do it. But then that gets back to your point of you just accept failure. That day's not going to work. So. Yeah. You, you had the option of being local that you could wait for good conditions, good weather yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, but it, to me, this exa- sort of exemplifies this notion of what we're talking about here. I mean, when I've done it, I've stayed in the huts every night and, you know, we've done it in a much more leisurely fashion. Um, it's exciting to think about covering that much terrain in, you know, in one day. Um, you know, some people would say, well, you're not enjoying the surroundings. And, and I think I would beg to differ. Um, I have a feeling that, you know, when Killian is racing up and down those mountains at breakneck speed, he's still enjoying the surroundings, probably just as much as I would be if I were walking. Um, <clears throat> he just gets to enjoy more surroundings because he could cover so much more distance than I can. And so yeah. I, I'm not sure I buy in that argument that, you know, going fast means you're not having fun or you're not, in, you're not enjoying things. No, and I mean, it's predictable. I have the opposite opinion. I think it's way more fun because you're experiencing the same terrain, but with a lot less weight on your back and it's compressed into less time. So you have the same experience compressed. So if if there's such a thing as experiential density, then it's much higher in a speed ascent or speed speed mission. Yeah, Um, definitely. And... Yeah, I mean, I mean, one thing people do do on the WAPTA is if they're doing it in day trips, they'll they'll go to a hut and then ski tour out of the huts, um, and that's that would certainly be a fun approach too. Um, but doing it in a day is is pretty fun as well. 
And, and one of the things that allowed you, obviously you had the fitness base to, to know or to have confidence that you could probably pull this off. Um, and you gained that fitness base through the training you'd done. And also you'd done a lot of other skiing, whether it was skimo racing or ski touring. So you'd kind of dialed in your kit. You knew what you needed. You knew what you didn't need. You knew how you needed, what you needed to eat and when you, how often you needed to eat and drink and all those sorts of things. And so you, it wasn't like you jumped immediately into the deep end of this pool. You had spent quite a long time preparing. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to yeah, and I mean, I have, I would say I have, well, I just climbed longer, so I feel like I have more climbing experience than skiing experience. But uh, what I didn't have an experience, and this is another good thing for planning trips, is I have a lot of friends with more, more experience. So I talk to a lot of them. I have a lot of friends that are mountain guides. I have uh, friends that are on the Banff public safety uh, team. So talking to them, I mean, they know that area. They can probably do it blindfolded. So they, they know that area so well. They know when conditions are good. Um, the friend of mine on the safety team was, you know, watching forecasts and giving me like, okay, I think next Tuesday to Thursday is going to be a good time and all that kind of, of information. So, I mean, that, that's another, another uh, free speed concept is, you know, leverage the information that you have available. So don't, don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, cause you know, by, by no means do I, am I an expert, but you know, mountain guides know that stuff way better than I do. And the public safety guys know it, you know, even, even better. So it's, it's, uh, it's good to ask for help that speeds things up too. So getting a little beta doesn't hurt. Beta, yeah. Beta. Yeah. yeah. Getting a, a lot yeah. of beta in fact. Yeah. And then when someone like that says, don't do that, that's a good thing. To listen to. <laughs> yeah. Listen to those voices of reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, something that came up last in our last Zoom talk with Steve and Mark was on their, their talk about Denali. There were a few questions about you know, going from 14,000 to the summit and back in a day. And that's something that Steve and I have written about in our Training for the Al New Alpinism book. And um, I've even got a little uh, anecdotal story in there about, you know, I've done that several times, but one of the um, times, I think I did this in 2005 with Colin Haley. And um, people, so people have asked about that. And I, and I want to elaborate a little more on that particular thing. Um, we, and I'll, talk, I'll lay out the basics uh, first. And then, so Colin and I were acclimatizing for a single push attempt on the Cassine Ridge. And so we were on the West Buttress as part of an acclimatization um, program. And we'd been hanging around at 14,000 feet and, and skiing in the basin above the 14,000 foot camp for two or three days. And we'd made a couple of forays up onto 14,000 feet, gone as high as, uh, excuse me, up onto the West Buttress as high as 17,000 foot camp. And, um, then we thought, well, what the heck, let's just go to the summit one day. And so we, we did, we went from the 14,000 foot camp to the summit and back in, I don't remember exactly the time, but it was on, under seven hours. I don't know how substantially under, but it was definitely under seven hours. And so many people have looked at that and thought, whoa, that's incredible. How fast, how could you do that? And all that sort of thing. And this comes, this is where some of that free speed idea comes in. But I want to bring some caveats into this, just like you with your WAPTA, 
traverse. So Colin and I had a lot of experience in the, these types of mountains, moving in this type of terrain. Um, we'd actually even, you know, we, because we'd gone to 14, just from 14 to 17 and back pretty easily um, as one acclimatization day, we sort of, we knew what our, our speed ability was and what our limits were. Then also on that particular route, um, it's very, on that, on that mountain at, uh, at 14,000 feet, there's a weather forecasting. You can get a great weather forecast from the Forest Service, from the Park Service, excuse me. And <clears throat> the forecasts for 24 hours ahead are incredibly accurate. Out beyond 24 hours, like most forecasts, they start to, uh, their accuracy drops off dramatically. So we knew that, okay, here's, here's Wednesday is a great looking day. Let's just, let's plan on doing that. We'll go to the summit and back in a day. It's not super cold. You know, I think it was probably only 10 or 15 degrees below zero on the summit that day. So we knew that we could travel really light and be, and be quite fast. Mm -hmm. And we also had the bail option that, you know, if anything went wrong, we were on one of the most heavily, the most heavily traveled route on the mountain. We could just turn around and come back down. Um, and so we, we strategized like you did on your WAPTA or any of these things that we try to encourage people to undertake. We, we got the beta, we understood where, what, what we were doing. We thought, oh, we're gonna leave. We're gonna wait until the morning sun comes around and hits this aspect of the mountain. So we didn't leave camp until 10.30 in the morning because then we had the sun on us all day long. Mm -hmm. We could carry a lot less clothing and wear less clothing, move faster. Um, and we knew also that when we were descending, we were the west, as you can know from the name, the west buttress faces west, we'd be coming down in the afternoon sun. And in June and on Denali, there's only a few hours of where the sun's not up. So we had lots of light. We had the sun in our favor. You know, people were kind of surprised that we were waiting till it was so late. But we just didn't want to be cold and we didn't want to have to carry all this extra clothes. So we managed to go. And I think there's a picture or two of Colin and me in the book doing that climb, you know, with tiny little day packs. I mean, we each had a puffy jacket and a water bottle and some sort of snack. And that was about it. And, um, and I think that, you know, so when people start looking at that and think, Oh, that's an amazing time. Well, I don't think either one of us were super athletes. I don't, I, I think we just approached this with, you know, wouldn't it be fun to try to do this? And I have no idea what the record on the West Buttress is. It was certainly much faster than what we did it, but um, it, it was a, an idea that like yours with the WAPTA, you know, we had, we'd set ourselves up for success by, by planning and kind of knowing what our, our limits were and what our experience would allow. And also, being fully aware that we we might need to bail. I mean, we mm -hmm. that was a very low probability, but neither one of us were. It's like it was not summit or die. That was never you know that never entered either of our brains. That certainly wasn't wasn't something we would have considered. Um, and I, I so I think that that sort of mindset is you know can help people bridge this gap between where they are and what's possible out there um, by just thinking about these, some of this stuff in a different way. And Scott, I want to go back to schema racing real quickly. And um, when you first got, not first, but after you'd been in schema racing for a year or two, and you were talking to me about how I trained cross-country skiers, because there's a lot in common between schema and cross-country skiing. 
and you allowed is how you really didn't know how to cross-country ski very much. Um, and most people don't understand that there's a lot of technique in cross-country skiing. We just think people walking and shuffling around in the, the city park, that's cross-country skiing. Um, and so one of the things that I suggested you do, because you have access to the Canmore Nordic Center, I suggested you buy a pair of classic skis and go learn to classic ski on Nordic skis because I said that is going to really help you with movement economy on your on your schemo skis. So talk a little bit about how that impacted you, um, what you learned, how long did it take you to learn it, um, that sort of thing. Sure. Well, yeah, I don't think I've learned it yet, but it did help. Um, so it reminds me of an of a earlier story that illustrates a similar point is like I, I went cross-country skiing once with a friend of mine who was on the national team and so that was just ridiculous because as a non-skier uh this is before schema but my I, I had a heart rate monitor at that time and i wore it to, to to see and i think my heart rate was like 50 percent higher than his like you know he's he's like cruising at 100 beats per minute and i'm at 150 or something so uh, just the difference in, he was probably at that time, obviously a lot fitter as well, but just the difference in economy. And so when, when I started cross country skiing for Schemo, it was similar. I couldn't, I, I have uh, higher than, than average heart rates in general, just I assume because the size of my heart is smaller or whatever. But anyway, I, when I started cross country skiing, I couldn't do it at less than 160 beats per minute. And then after a couple seasons, I could I could do it in the in the 130s. I mean, I, I'm never it was never very fast, um, but it's certainly that that change wasn't. I didn't get my speed didn't increase in a proportionate amount. I think I just got better at cross country skiing, um, and I assume that that helped my schema racing as well. It it took me another season to get up the courage to get some roller skis. Um, but those probably even help more because they're even, as you know, even more unstable, um, and a lot more committing because falling hurts. Um, but anyway, so those two just learn, learning how to diagonal stride better, um, I think just reduced the cost, like back to the idea of cost, uh, versus capacity, reduced the cost of standing on one ski, whether that was a classic cross-country ski or a schemo ski or a roller ski, um, just getting better at it. And I guess the, the drop in heart rate is probably the best indication of a reduced cost. Um, sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm still not a cross-country skier though. <laughs> but, but the little bit that you did still paid some pretty big dividends when it came to schemo racing. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. And I put in a lot of time, like probably, I don't know, over a couple of years, at least a couple hundred hours on, on cross-country skis, plus my schemo skis. So. Yeah. And, and this comes down, so I could, I could say with some authority on this, that I think you know, cross-country skiing is, in my experience, the most technically demanding endurance sport. Um, because of the fact you're standing on a two-inch wide board, that's sliding along at you know maybe 20 miles an hour, trying to balance and propel yourself at the same time. Um, and there's a lot of room, as you found out when you went skiing with your friend on the national team. There's a lot mm -hmm. of room for um, inefficiencies and yes. just, you know kind of using excess power to do what's unneeded. And that's a great lesson 
Um, and it translates over to what we were talking about, whether it's with schema or it's certainly in the alpine climbing realm, um, you know, which has a vast uh, network or vast palette, I would say, of technical skills that are needed to be mastered. And you know, we've, we've touched on a number of those already today, but it's, those are places, as you've said, I love the, I love the expression of you know, lowering the cost. I mean, we, we preach increasing capacity all the time on our website yeah. and in our coaching, yeah. but you know, making people more efficient and more economical in what they do by whether it comes from you know, just not having a heavy pack or in your case, learning to get an extra inch or two of glide on each one of your schemo strides um, by, by, by understanding how, how cross-country skiing works. All those little tips are, were, are, can be brought to, to bear when, you know, on the primary event that you're, that you're training for. Um, something we haven't really touched a lot on mountain running, but I think we should talk a little bit about the economy gains in running. And they come from a few different, a little bit, slightly different um, track. Of course, they're, they're still technical gains. I mean, you can't run sloppily and, and be efficient. But one of the biggest gains we've seen that comes to improving or helping people improve their running economy, meaning lowering the cost to run at the same speed, is an improvement in power, power output. Um, so that each stride takes you a little bit farther and we've seen this translate really really well even for ultra runners to to learn to do some some uh, hill sprinting and hill bounding and and that sort of thing i think steve we've got a photo in there of one of our coaches sam during a, um, a hill bounding workout for schemo if you can drag that up somewhere um, but what what these types of workouts do so yeah, there's Sam kind of getting ready for the schemo season, bounding uphill very explosively. This could this can be done, you know, he's using poles here because he's training for schemo, but it could be done running just as well. But this type of very explosive, very short duration, super high intensity, like maximal effort with a long rest in between, it's almost anathema to endurance athletes to do that kind of thing. I mean, most endurance athletes would rather spend their days, you know, if you're a mountain runner, let's say going out and running for two or three hours at a relatively slow pace. Making special time to do this type of workout is something that most people um, are gonna overlook. Just like, you know, most people aren't gonna be willing to buy a pair of cross country skis. Most schemo racers aren't gonna be willing to buy cross country skis or even roller, especially roller skis and go out and actually learn how to ski on those things but taking the, this particular thing that we see sam doing here and i've used this with dozens and dozens of athletes over the years and it's seen enormous gains and i'll give you an example right now of one in particular so with the shutdown that we're dealing with um one of the guys that I, one of the alpinists that i coach david gotler also really likes to run and he's locked down in spain so for the past oh three months or more, he's really not been able to go outdoors and run much. So he has a treadmill in his house and he has a long gravel uphill driveway, slight uphill driveway. And so his longest runs have been about an hour 
and he's doing them on a treadmill. They're pretty easy. But twice a week, he's doing one workout that looks like what Sam's doing here. He's what we call hill sprints. He's not using poles because he's more interested in gaining running speed. So he's sprinting up a hill for 10, 10 or 12 seconds at a time with two or three minute long walk down rest. All these, these, this hill sprint idea is described in detail in our book. Um, the other workout is a, what we call a run with pickups and runners often call these things strides where during the course of a run, he will accelerate up to a, a nice, fun, fast pace for 10 or 15 seconds, then drop back to his easy pace um, for a while and do that you know, six to eight times during this course of uh, like an hour long run. So, no, but no real endurance training during this time because of the lockdown. And David, and as soon as things opened up, he went back to this course, this trail that he could run. And this is a trail that takes about um, an hour and a half loop and he runs it all the time. And when we compared pre and post lockdown performance, his performance improved by about 20%. But, and the only difference we've done in this training was these speed, this type of speed work. And so, there, and I've, do, I've seen the same sort of thing with many of the other athletes that I coach is this improve because, and it all, it's not because his fitness improved, his stride length improved. So it suddenly cost him less, like Scott was saying earlier, cost less to go that same distance so he could do it faster because he's covering a longer stride um, each, uh, in each step. And I think that's a, that, so in terms, I wanted to touch on, on, um, running economy because we haven't really been spending much time on that or I haven't spent any time until just now but I mean we've been hitting economy in all these other things whether it's moving around in alpine terrain or uh, knowing what you know getting your pack weight down and, and all that sort of thing. Another, another thing what that reminds me of or another thing that helped my running economy a lot was switching from being a hill striker to landing mid four and forefoot. I know you read some articles that say you shouldn't bother with switching your your foot strike, uh, but in my experience, made it made a big difference. Like with no, when I first started playing with it, with no change in fitness because it was too short, I I was about thirty seconds faster per kilometer just to eliminate by eliminating the breaking motion of being a heel striker. The caveat is that it took maybe two years for my calves to fully transition from being a heel striker to being a midfoot striker. So you have to do it with patience, um, but it definitely, you know, made a big difference um, for just my running economy. And uh, yeah, it was well worth it. But again, you got to be careful so you don't create injuries. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, some of the other things I thought would be, you know, maybe we can just kind of, touch on a couple of stuff, a couple of things here. Um, when you are, like, how did, did, you said you learned from, I mean, people who were more skilled than you. And how, how did you manage to find those people to, to give you guidance? I mean, you, obviously you bumbled around and stumbled and did some stupid stuff and made mistakes like we all do. But, but was there a way you used to, to find th people that could help point you in the right direction? Yeah, well, that's a good question and an excellent, like learning, learning from people's obviously free speed. Um, the, well, I guess what uh, it makes me think of a few things, like 
when I was really into climbing, uh, or when I first started climbing, I was in Saskatchewan, which, uh, you know, is, there's not a lot of climbing in Saskatchewan. There's a very active Alpine Club chapter there in Saskatchewan. But anyway, um, so I built a 45-degree overhanging bouldering wall in my basement, and I couldn't do anything on it. <laughs> but anyway, so then I, what I did the, is move to Canmore, Alberta. And uh, in Western Canada, Canmore is one of the climbing centers. Um, so as, as far as learning things quickly, um, the, one of the things I could stress the most is immersion. Um, if you wanted to be a big free skier, I would, in Canada, I would move to Whistler. If you want to learn ice climbing in Canada, I would move to Canmore. Uh, and so in, when I was in Canmore, I met tons of people that were really good ice climbers that no one has ever heard of. Um, you know, that there's tons of people that can climb grade six ice in Canmore. Um, so you're in a, in a culture where that's normal. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a high, it's a high level for sure. So maybe, but it's, it's, it's not unheard of. Um, so you make friends and, uh, one of the, one of the luckiest breaks I had was I was, well, when I first started climbing, I moved into my car. I saved a bunch of money and lived in my car for three years and in the winter would look for a place to stay. And so, uh, after a while that gets old and I, heard that Will Gad was looking for a roommate. So as a, as a wannabe ice climber, uh, Will Gad for looking for a roommate seemed like a happy, a lucky chance. So I can't remember if we had a mutual friend or I can't remember how that connection was made. So I, I ended up uh, living with, with Will at, for a few years and, and his wife at that point, Kim. And both Will and Kim took my ice climbing to a new level just by osmosis uh just by hearing them talk about ice climbing how they thought about ice climbing you know move like this not like that um so i would say most of the things i've learned have come from other people endurance training i've learned 99 percent from you um ice climbing from will and kim and other friends in canmore um it it's yeah, I, I owe a lot to all my mentors who are, are thankfully friends as well. So it's... And would you agree, I mean, maybe we probably should wrap this up here fairly quickly, but would you agree, Scott, with the sentiment, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you do, so that's why I'm sticking my neck out here, um, that you know, one of the things that enables um, you to be, for instance, a good coach in your new found life your new life as a coach, no longer much of, as much of an athlete, <clears throat> is all those mistakes you've made. And I mean, obviously you learn from other people that helps you not make as many mistakes. But I think that one thing that I know we try to practice at Uphill Athlete is that humility of letting people know that, you know, that we, we weren't born with this knowledge. We developed this knowledge through a lot of trial and error, whether it's you know, in, in my case, you know, having become overtrained or overtrained other athletes or, you know, all the mistakes that you made as a climber or a ski mountaineer racer, all those things are, have given you such a deeper understanding of what it takes to, you know, to be good, but probably more important, what it takes to not be bad. 
you know, what, to, what to avoid. Like, oh, don't do that. You know, I, I often joke with people and, you know, because I'm on the phone a lot with folks calling up and asking questions about training. <clears throat> and I like to joke, oh, that's mistake number 1364. I can tell you exactly <laughs> how to solve that mistake. You know, because, you know, I've got this catalog of all these things I've done wrong over the years. I'm sure I could probably have written a longer book than either of the books on how to do things. I could have written a longer book on how not to do stuff. Um, so I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, I, I know you feel this way too, Scott. We talked about it before we came on the air about how important it is to, you know, acknowledge our own feet of clay. We, we this is, this is knowledge that we have was hard won. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I, I wonder, you know, if I had just bit the bullet and hired someone uh, like in, a, in addition to what you were sharing with me, if I had hired someone just to tell me what to do, so I didn't have to learn it, um, would I have progressed faster or got to a, high, a higher level? But then on the other hand, like you say, I, I think I've made all the mistakes. So learning from all those mistakes, um, it just, the, the experience or the experience you get um, is just so much worthwhile. So yeah, I, I totally agree that we've, we've made all the mistakes and it's, it's uh, the trick now is, ex is explaining to clients, like you say, that's mistake number 1,362 and this is why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> because I did that in 19 whatever. Yeah, I did you that, know, it didn't work out so well. And, yeah, and hopefully getting sick. Exactly. Yep. I mean, yep. I know you've written quite a bit about the getting sick part on the website. And um, yeah, so I think that uh, maybe we should wrap it with that kind of and end things on that note. But um, so what we hope to have in, uh, shown people today is that, you know, they're, you can think outside the fitness box. You know, the fitness box is huge and it's really, really important, um, which is why we spend so much ink on it. But it's not the only way to improve your your speed or your your capacity or excuse me to lower your cost. I shouldn't say mm -hmm. capacity, using the wrong word there. But um, to lower the cost of doing many of these things that you enjoy. If it costs you less, you're going to be able to do more of it. Yeah. yeah. But I thank everybody for showing up for today. Um, and if you if you've got questions about some of these things that we that we've touched on. Feel free to um, ask questions in the forum. Scott and I are on the forum quite often and be happy to, to answer you there. Well, thanks again, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming.